I would have you open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to look at the first 10 verses here. This is a great chapter, though it's short, which speaks of the living faith of a believer. We're affirming the truth here of Scripture that faith in Jesus Christ Himself being the living, creating, sustaining Son of God is not a dormant grace. Faith in Christ does not lie static in a believer. To be sure, there is a war that rages between remaining sin and the Spirit of God or the Spirit of holiness in our life, and that war is real. But the Spirit of God takes the Word of God that we have open and He makes application of it to us in such a way that it bears fruit in our life. And I think this would play out in your own experience. The more that you know about Christ, the more that the Spirit of God unfolds all of the truth concerning Him to you, the more fruitful you are in your life, in service to Him. Because the more you know Him, or we might say the more you know about Him, the more you want to make Him known. We should desire that everyone know the same Christ that has saved us. He has completely intervened in our lives and set us on a different course. So with the Spirit of God taking His Word, producing in us Things that correspond and accord to the Spirit. Paul said in Romans 6, We have now been set free from sin and have become slaves of God or a servant of God, owned of God. And we have fruit to holiness. And in the end, eternal life. Think about that great phrase. You have your fruit to holiness here and now, and in the end, everlasting or eternal life. If you were to back up in that sixth chapter of Romans to a few verses prior to what I just read you, Paul would say, therefore, since you are, in, since you are alive unto God, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust and do not present your members. And here Paul is talking about the members of your body, your hands, your feet, your mouth, your eyes, your ears. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves as alive to God, alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to him. For sin no longer has dominion over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. So I wanted to read those verses as a precursor to what we'll read here in this first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes great words to an infant church. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But some of the things that Paul describes in this first chapter, we would think he would be writing to very mature saints, but nothing could be further from the truth. And I'll show you why after we read. Verse 1 says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. 
to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. What tremendous truth. Let me give you just a bit of the larger context of this letter. There are only two paragraphs in Acts chapter 17 that tell us anything about Thessalonica. That tell us anything about Paul's relationship to this church or how this church was established. You remember it was established in haste. Paul was fleeing persecution and he came to this city and what he found there, though it was a majority, a Gentile city, he found a synagogue. So what would we expect Paul to do? For three days, the scripture tells us, three Sabbath days, he goes in and he reasons from the scriptures with the Jews who were there, and the text in Acts says he does two things. He explains and demonstrates that Jesus is indeed the Christ. And the result of this explanation and this demonstration concerning Jesus, Acts chapter 17 tells us that there were not a few leading women and some other men there who were formed into a church, a body of Christ who are now found believing in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it doesn't take long for the Jews to become envious. That's the word that Luke uses in Acts as he describes for us what is taking place. The Jews become envious. Why? Because their crowd now has been taken away by Paul to hear truth concerning Jesus and they've believed it. And this was infuriating because no doubt as they taught in the synagogues, they were trying to explain and trying to demonstrate that Jesus was not the Christ. But it's a good reminder for us, Pharisees saying Jesus is not the Christ, a former Pharisee coming and saying Jesus is the Christ. What makes the difference? Why did some believe Paul? The Spirit of God took the words of a man and applied it to the heart, the mind, the soul. And they believed into the saving of their soul. 
That's the same reason why perhaps you sat in church for years. Perhaps you were exposed to the gospel for years and it was like it was falling on deaf ears. But then one day, one glorious day, something was different. Something was changed. You heard the same words. But they were no longer just, it was no longer just the conveying of words. Now there was force behind it. Now there was something that felt like it was driving it down into the depth of your soul. And you heard and you believed. The Spirit of God made application. And I I pray and I hope and trust that the Spirit of God would continue to do that work among us even today. Right here in this place as we sit. From those same two chapters, same two paragraphs in Acts 17, we can piece together a few things that help us as we read the first chapter of Paul's epistle. After just a few weeks of instruction, now imagine this, after just a few weeks of having been instructed by Paul, Paul and Timothy leave this town again under heavy Duress And what they leave in their wake, though they commend them to God, what they leave is an infant church. So, if you read this letter in its entirety, chapter 3 tells us that Paul sent Timothy to them. His most trusted companion, his son in the faith, trusting Timothy to go there and to teach and instruct and to encourage the faith of the saints there. That's exactly the words that verse 1 of chapter 3 uses. Timothy was sent to establish, which means to stabilize. And you can imagine the tempests that were left after Paul left town. And here these few believers are gathered together in the name of Christ, being heavily persecuted by the Jews. And Timothy comes to establish them, to calm the waters to give them a firm foundation. But then he only stays a while, and the sixth verse of chapter 3 tells us that he returned again to Paul. And he brought news, and Paul called it good news. It was good news because Timothy bore witness that they were making some progress in the faith. But that's not all that he brought with him. He brought some troubling points as well. And that's why Particularly as you read First and Second Thessalonians, it seems to be that there was great confusion in this infant church about the second coming of Christ. That's why Paul in two places says, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning the coming of the Lord. And he declares for them the truth of what it is really like for those who have either died in the Lord or those who will remain alive at the coming of the Lord. He clears away their confusion. Two other points to make before we settle down here in this first chapter. And that is out of verse 1. We read over it so quickly. It's become commonplace in the greetings of Paul. But he uses a word here, church, which means a gathering, an assembly. And he later tells us in this same chapter that this assembly is made up of former idolaters, how you turn to God from idols. And so God in his miraculous working takes former idolaters and assembles them into a people now who are loving the Lord and awaiting his return, serving him, believing in him, trusting in him. The same is true of us. If you were here this morning 
not in a church building, but if you were here this morning in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, the same can very much be said of you. You've been taken from the realm of idolatry, whether that idol was yourself, your self-preservation, your self-comfort, your self-promotion, whatever it may have been, you've been taken from this idol and now set amongst the people of God as his church, his bride. But we also learn from verse 1 that prayers of thanksgiving unto God for the salvation of men and the fellowship of believers should comprise much of our praying. You know, we often don't realize how blessed we are until the Lord removes certain things from our life. Can you imagine how grievous it would be if you were removed from the fellowship of the saints? That's a piercing question, and it reveals your heart toward the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The scriptures say very plainly that we cannot live the vibrant, healthy, doctrinally sound life of a believer without being immersed into a local church. There is safety here like no other. You study heresies of the past, present, and any that come in the future... Most often, not always, but most often, they were birthed by men who had not been checked by a body of believers. That's why most of them are referred to by the name of that individual that spawned the heresy. So there is great safety in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ when it is ordered biblically, when it is carrying on its mission in a biblical way, there is great safety and there is great joy and there is great help and there is great peace and there is great fellowship and I could go on for a long time. But we get down into the second verse. And we are instructed as to why Paul is giving thanks for these believers. Why he always mentions them in his prayers. Why he remembers them without ceasing. And he doesn't just say because of your faith, love and hope. Though that would seemingly be enough. That would be true enough but he qualifies each one of these that's why I began by saying faith and we could add to that love and hope are not static or dormant graces in the lives of believers they're living productive causing fruit to be born on your tree so to speak so let's look at each one of those in turn Paul says, I remember your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. And he speaks of these, as we move into the fourth verse, he speaks of these as evidences of their election of God. We're going to get to this in just a moment, but Paul uses an interesting phrase. He says, knowing your election of God. 
we would all agree that the electing purposes of God are shrouded in great mystery. How could Paul say he knows it? Is he being arrogant? No. He knows it through observation. He knows it by seeing what is being produced in their lives. So let's look at what one person has called the immediate grounds of Paul's prayers of thanksgiving. The immediate grounds of his continual, unceasing prayers of thanksgiving for this group of believers. The first thing that he mentions is your work of faith. And here we have those two words joined together again. Work, faith. We should consider these as the works produced by faith and not the other way around. I like Albert Barnes' comment on this verse. He says, works of faith are those to which faith prompts and which show that there is faith in the heart. This does not mean, therefore, a work of their own producing, which has produced faith but a work which shows forth that there is real and true faith in the heart. Paul doesn't describe what these particular works are, though the chapter gives us some hints. This was a people young in their belief, young as a church, but bent on making Jesus known. Paul says, you have become a sounding board for the gospel. From you, the word of God is sounding forth. In a great way, in a great show of how the Spirit of God has converted and changed them. He says your work of faith is reason and ground for my continual praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. But it's not just the work of faith. He also qualifies the labor of love. You have people in your life that you love greatly. Be it your wife, your children, your parents, whomever it may be. How do you show that? We say it with words. We say, I love you. We we need to affirm that with, with words. But how do we give good evidence that we mean what we say? It's by the things that we do for them. The way that we love them. That's what the word here is, labor of love. It means toil or agony. And there's a distinction to be made between the work and the labor. But notice both of those are words that we might be prone to shy away from. I mean, after all, isn't the Christian life presented by many in our day as being nothing more than blissful joy and always having what you want and God providing for you every whim of your desire, always having plenty of money and always healthy. And far too often, that's the way that Christianity is presented. But Scripture presents a Christianity that is much different. It's a working, laboring Christianity. The word labor here. There's the distinction that is made, and I'm quoting to you here from Jeffrey Wilson. He's helped me, so I want to pass this on to you. He said, work points to the thing done, the thing performed. 
What have you done? Well, I have done this for you. I have worked for you. He, he also goes on to say, labor, on the other hand, points to the pain spent in performing the work. Not all work is easy. Some is. Some may be easy and delightful. But all labor, anything that is distinguished as labor is toilsome. And he goes on to say, no selfish man will endure labor for another's good. That's why this labor of love is always birthed from an unselfish heart. Or else we just flat out won't toil for someone else. But when we consider the toil and labor of the Lord Jesus for us, it makes this come alive, doesn't it? Jesus labored in toil in proving his love. Jesus did not just come to earth and declare, though he was the son of God, he could have called a legion of angels to back up this declaration. He did not just come to earth and say with his mouth, I love you. He proved it through toil. And he proved it through great labor. The precursor to that was the sweating great drops of blood in the garden. And then the real labor came after he was handed over, after he was betrayed by Judas, after he was taken into custody. And after we read those gruesome details in the Gospels, which are gruesome but glorious at the same time. Because if it weren't for those gruesome realities of what Jesus endured and the labor and the toil on our behalf, then we would not know his love as expressed to us fully. And so we take him for our example in all things, right? In everything, but especially in this labor of love. How, how do you know as a church that you love one another? How do you know that I love you or that you love me. How do we know these things? By our willingness to unselfishly, that's what the word agape means, to unselfishly love one another through toil and labor. And that's why I I wholeheartedly agree with what Jeffrey Wilson has said. No selfish man will endure this kind of labor producing love for another's good. But one who loves Christ, I can say that the opposite way and make it much more powerful. The one loved by Christ will labor on behalf of the brethren. Now we see why that's the second aspect of why Paul says, when I think of you, when I remember what you have done, I pray to God unceasingly giving prayers of thanksgiving, not just because your works of faith, but your labor of love. And perhaps Paul had been on the receiving end, even though briefly as he passed through this town, perhaps he had been on the receiving end of their love, but more so he had been told it by Timothy. And I can imagine Timothy's report. Timothy coming to Paul, saying, Brother Paul, man, these people love each other. And they love those around them. That's why Paul could say you're, you're, a sounding, you're a sounding board for the gospel. But there's a third element. It's not just their work of faith, labor, and love, but he also combines these two words, your patience of hope. Your patience of hope. 
One of the things that characterizes us as Christians is our great hope. If you are sitting here as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a greater hope than anyone on the earth. It's a common hope that we share together. What what are you hoping for? You're hoping for the return of Christ. It's certain. You're hoping that he will further form and sanctify us into his own glory. The scriptures say that he is preparing a bride and he is washing her with the water of the word. He is adorning her in a robe of white. It's certain. But yet we still call it hope. We live as those whose hope is secure. We live as those who have a a great expectation. And this patience that is spoken of here, this is not the patience of resignation. This is not the patience that suffers as, as if there is no other thing to hope in. This is the fortitude which meets the trials that come into the lives of Christians with the certainty of hope based upon the finality of coming victory which will be ushered in at Christ's second coming. Our hope is tremendously founded upon the truth of the living God. So Paul says, I I continue without ceasing to pray for you every time I think of you as I remember your work of faith, labor of love, and the patience of hope that defines who you are. That is a definitive picture of a Christian. These are the inner attitudes that should be dwelling in my heart and in yours increasingly. A willingness to be used of God through faith to produce these kind of works. We were saved unto good works, Paul said in Ephesians 2. Not saved by them, but saved to perform them. We should be more and more willing to toil and labor for one another in an expression of love. And then also to be patiently hoping and waiting Upon Christ. That's the way the chapter ends. And then we get to the fourth verse. Paul says something very interesting when he says, knowing, and that's a word of full knowledge, that's not a word of supposed or partial knowledge, that is a word that is, that is full to a great degree, knowing, beloved brethren, your election of God. Election by God. Now remember what I said earlier. This is a young church. Why is Paul writing to them such high doctrine? Why even bring up this matter of election, Paul, to this young church? It's just going to confuse them. It's going to confound them. They're not going to know what you're talking about. Well, I suppose that in that brief amount of time that he spent with them, this was a great part of what he was teaching. Why else would he mention it? And it also teaches us something else. This is not just a high doctrine for the most mature of saints. It is a foundational element of the faith for a new believer. 
There is scarcely anything in the scriptures that will make your heart well up with love towards Christ than to know of this doctrine. What does John say? We love him because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. Think of this. Christ set his affection on you before you were ever born. Christ set his affections on you before you were being knit together in your mother's womb. Jeffrey Wilson again says, unlike those who take it upon themselves to conceal what God has been pleased to reveal, the apostle always declared the whole counsel of God and not simply that part of it which would not offend the autonomy of the natural man. This election spoken of, which is spoken of throughout the scriptures, is an election to final salvation of a people whom he gave to Christ before times eternal. Without respect to their foreseen faith, the grand purpose which is to redound to the glory of his grace. That's the phrase that's repeated through that great, long, doctrinally rich sentence there that begins Ephesians chapter 1. To the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of the glory of his grace. According to his good pleasure. All of these things are teaching us about this very doctrine that Paul says he knows about this young church. And so that begs the question. How did he know it? If this is, and it is, a mysterious doctrine, why would Paul say, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God? I think that question is answered for us as we keep reading. He says in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. The gospel comes in power to the elect of God. That's how Paul knew. History tells us that Paul was short, a little hunchbacked, and had a long nose. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But that's the way the history books would sketch his person for us. Paul says, I know this because I came to you, just like he would write to the Corinthians, I came to you in weakness, and all I had were words coming out of my mouth that were matched by, my, by who I was. That's why I said, you know what kind of men we were among you for your sakes. In other words, what he said was backed up by the way that he lived, but he was a very unimpressive specimen by all other counts. And as he preached, as he reasoned and explained in the synagogue on those Sabbath days that we read of in Acts chapter 17, Paul says, I know this for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. And in much assurance, for you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And this is the second reason that Paul, I think Paul is giving for how he knows 
You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of God takes the things of Christ and opens them to you and opens the word of God to you, it does not matter what your external circumstances are. You could be broke. You could be homeless. Or so much worse. But yet when the Spirit of God opens the beauty of Christ to you, you will receive it with joy that is not determined by your external circumstances at all. That is the definition of what real and true happiness is in the life of a Christian. It's a happiness that is not based in the least upon external circumstance. Sometimes the external circumstances of life just stink. They just do. Does that mean that our our joy is going to dissipate and go away? Doesn't have to. Paul said, you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. That's how I know. That's why I can be so dogmatic about this mysterious doctrine with you because of the inroad that the gospel made among you and how it so pleased God in a time of great affliction using me, this little insignificant man dismissed by the, the high minds in Athens at Mars Hill at being a little seed picker. This is how I know that God used me and Timothy and Silas among you and he broke in on you. You know that to be true. If you're a believer here this morning, you know that the Spirit of God at some point broke in on you. And whether or not that was with great fanfare and a lot of tears doesn't always come that way. But there was an understanding given to you that you once did not have. Some of you have been converted a long time. But can you think back to the joy of those early days? That overwhelming sense of abiding joy. I'm saved. God has justified me in his sight. I no longer am an object of his wrath, but now he has converted me. He has saved me. He's justified me. He's covered me with the blood of Christ. I am wearing the righteous robes of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love John Bunyan's words when he's writing in the Pilgrim's Progress. He says, the one thing that gives me hope when I show up to the gate of the celestial city, I am hopeful that they will let me in because I'm showing up there in the robes of the king." And they will know that somewhere along my journey, I have come into contact with their king. And they will open the gate to me widely because I'm there in his righteousness. My goodness, if you've never read the Pilgrim's Progress, read it. <laughs> read it. It's not scripture, but it'll certainly point you to it and unfold it for you. So the Spirit came in power it came producing joy. And also, Paul says, you became examples of us, or you, became, you followed us to the extent that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Here's the third reason why Paul can say so dogmatically, I know, because now you are being used of God to make the very knowledge that saved you, you're being used of God to make it known. 
You're a sounding board. Some Christians seem to live like they're covered in that kind of stuff. I don't know what it's called, but that when, it, when, when sound hits it, it absorbs it. Sometimes you'll go into a large room with a hard floor, a gymnasium, and they have these things hanging in the ceiling and on the walls that are carpeted or made out of some soft material. The purpose of that is to absorb all the noise, right? To make it a little less loud and make the echo a little less loud. As Christians, we're not called to be wrapped in that stuff, whatever it's called. We're called to be sounding boards. The word of God sounding forth from us. That's why Paul says, I know that I can say this about you because the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. What? Paul, Silas, and Timothy no longer need to say anything? Isn't that an interesting assertion by him? The one who says, I am an apostle, not by the will of man, not by my own will, but by the will of God sent forth by Jesus. And this point in time, he's saying, your faith is so, it has so enraptured you. Your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope is speaking so loudly that we no longer need to speak. And he says, they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. There's a little debate here whether they in this verse is the works that are being performed and, and going forth or if it is the individuals who live in Macedonia and Achaia who are bearing witness. I don't think it matters either way how we interpret that. The meaning remains the same. But then I love how this ends. I hope you love it too. The ninth and the tenth verse. The second half of verse 9 and then verse 10. They declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. And, and this is how he qualifies what has happened in the lives of these people. First, he said, how you turned to God from idols. That's an about face. How you turned, notice, toward God. From, now your back is to the idol, whatever that idol was. And this, is, this is true even of Abraham. Father Abraham, the, the father of the faithful. He lived in the Ur of the Chaldees and God set his affection on him. What was Abraham before God singled him out? He was an idol worshiper. He was an idolater. But yet God called him into himself, just like he has each of us who have put our faith and trust in Christ. We have turned to God from idols to do what? Notice the specificity, to serve, to serve the living and true God, not to sit and rest now on our laurels of what we know. That goes all the way back to where we started. It's the work of faith. One of the reasons why Paul continually, unceasingly prayed. What they knew about Christ was not static. It was not dormant. It was vibrant and alive. It's not a stretch to say you could see it in them. This thing that is invisible is made known. 
It's sounding forth and going forth out from them. They had turned to God from idols to serve Him. Both of those points, glorious, but what of the third? To wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus. What are you waiting for? For your bank account to grow? For your investment portfolio to blossom and flourish? For that day and time when you can buy a bigger home, a nicer car? What are you waiting for? Above all of those weights, and I'm not saying that all of those weights are evil. Some of those are good stewardship. But I'm saying what needs to trump all of those weights is waiting on Christ. To live in the reality that Jesus is coming again. To wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You mean there's wrath yet to come? Yeah. Upon whom? All those who have not professed faith in Christ. The truth of the gospel is that God the Father poured out His wrath upon His Son. The scripture tells us that the Son drank the cup of that wrath to the very dregs. He drained it. For a believer there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are found in Christ. Not so of those outside of him. Some have said this this way, and if this is original to someone, I don't know who it is. But it points to certain words, and I'll point those out as I go through. We are saved by God. True enough? We are saved by God from the wrath of God. Some have shortened that and just made it say we are saved by God from God. You realize that's a part of your salvation? God has saved you from himself? We say I've been saved from my sin. Well, true. But sin only ensures the wrath of God to come upon you in eternity in Gehenna and the lake of fire. So God in mercy and grace has reached down and saved you from himself. We don't often think in those terms, but it's true. We are saved by God from the wrath of God in order that we will live for God. That's exactly what Paul has said in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. We are saved by God from the wrath of God in order that we will live for God. The third aspect of what it, what it means to have come to faith, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. My intent here 
is not to, to frighten anyone outside of the boundaries of what, how God would frighten you. I just want to speak the truth to you. There is a coming day which Malachi the prophet says is burning like an oven. And what that means is when the time comes that only the father knows, he doesn't have to hit preheat. <laughs> it's burning like an oven. It's prepared. It's ready. And in that day, every believer in any part of the world, from the least mature to the most mature, will be found in Christ. And Christ will have absorbed the wrath of God for them. But every person for any reason, whether it's pride, stubbornness, or just rank unbelief, Every unbeliever will experience the wrath of God. Here's the horrifying part. That wrath is unending. That is the horror of hell. The absence of the grace of God. You realize this world, as bad as it is, all of it is under the common grace of God. The common grace of God, one day that will be withdrawn. And each one will receive a fair recompense. Those who are found in Christ, eternal glory. Those who are not found in Christ by faith, eternal punishment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the truth of it, Lord, how thankful we are that we never have to doubt that what we're reading is faithful and true. Even more encouraging, you've told us in the scriptures, as it makes declaration of itself, that the truths here are forever settled in heaven. These are not up for debate. So, Father, we, we thank you for this testimony of Paul as he considered the Thessalonian believers how there was faith working in love. How there was patience of hope. How there was real waiting upon Jesus, whom you have raised from the dead. Now residing in heaven, there is real waiting upon him to return. May we be found in that number. May we be able to sing in truth when Christ shall come, that there will be a real shout of acclamation. What joy shall fill our hearts when he returns to take us to our forever home. We pray these things in his name, trusting that you will accomplish your work in us. Lord, we pray for any unbeliever that you would bring them to faith, that they would see afresh and anew like they've never seen before the beauty of the Lord Jesus and run to him in faith. We ask it in his name. Amen.